hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm? What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. In 1916, Dr. Winfield Hall, a professor at Northwestern University, published Sexual Knowledge for the Instruction of Young Wives and Young Husbands. Now, Dr. Hall does get credit for identifying the clitoris when describing female anatomy, even though he never mentions it again or states the role of the clitoris in sexual response. But his real claim to fame is his description of what happens to women who masturbate, also known as self-abuse. According to Dr. Hall, quote, the destructive and loathsome habit of self-abuse is occasionally acquired by girls quite accidentally or learned from older, vulgar girls who seem to delight in teaching their own bad habits to younger girls. Whether this habit is learned accidentally or through evil associations, it is in every case not only subversive of nature's plan for the development of the girl into a beautiful womanhood, but it also serves as a serious shock to her nervous system and if persisted in will cause a wreck of that system. He goes on to caution, if a girl has been so unfortunate as to have acquired this habit, she will be encouraged to know that all that nature requires is to quit the habit absolutely. Nature will then come to her rescue and within two or three years will completely rehabilitate her radiant young womanhood. And there you have it. And that is only one example of a long history of women not only knowing nothing about sexual pleasure, but being made to feel as if there is something dangerous and wrong with them if they seek it which is why I am so thrilled today to welcome Dr. Lori Mintz, the counterpoint to the Dr. Halls of the world. Dr. Mintz is a professor, a therapist, and the author of Becoming Cliterate, Why Orgasm Equality Matters and How to Get It, the groundbreaking book that changed not only how millions of women and men think about female sexual pleasure, but how women can own sexual pleasure. So welcome, Dr. Mintz. Well, thank you for that introduction and juxtaposing me with that horror. I know. Um, <laughs> have you heard you. that particular? Have you heard of Dr. Hall? Probably. I have, but I haven't. Like the way you said it, and the quotes were just mind blowing. Yes, yeah, it, in a bad is, way. <laughs> it is kind of mind blowing. And when I wrote my book Sex RX some years ago, I I love history of medicine stuff, and I kind of went down that rabbit hole of the history of orgasm and masturbation. And I actually didn't put really any of it in the book because there was just too much. And you just read it and you go, "Oh my god, I I can't believe it." But you know, in many ways, we are still still there. I mean, that's. I would imagine one of the reasons why why you wrote your book. So let's start there. Why did your book need to be written? Well, my book was inspired by my students. I teach the psychology of human sexuality to hundreds of students a year. And when I started teaching about female orgasm, they didn't know a thing. And they were so misguided by a a combination of a lack of good sex ed and the fact they were getting their images from porn that I would say a vast majority of the young women in my class felt broken 
And when I would talk about the clitoris, it would be new to them. And I was like shocked. And so I really started teaching to that. And I would get notes from my students like, thanks to your class, I'm orgasmic. Thanks to your class, my girlfriend's orgasmic. And I thought, I can't believe that it was 2017 that this book needs to be written. But I, I, my students' experience told me that it needed to be written, and and it and it still does. I mean, it's written, been written. It needs it needs to be read. I I do a, um, a seminar every year for graduate students at the Kellogg School of Business on sexual function, and interestingly, at their request, we divide the men and the women, and most of the questions that come from the women are about orgasm. And I've never quite had the nerve to do this because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I'd love to put up a diagram of a vulva and say, okay, point out the clitoris to see how many can actually do it. Have you ever done that in your class? I haven't um, done that, but I know that there's been research that's done that. And in a high percentage of women and men cannot find it. Don't know what it is. They don't know where it is. Not to mention, they don't know what to do with it once they do. <laughs> exactly. Where's that? You know, so um, are you finding, because you've been teaching this course for a long time now, do you find that it's any better today than it was, say, even four or five years ago? Yes, I do. And I feel like very encouraged by that. Like, you know, five, six years ago, this was like brand new to these students. And now I'd say like a good percentage of them come in knowing this, um, but there's still a huge percentage that don't know anything about their anatomy, feel broken, um, and feel ashamed of themselves for not orgasming during intercourse. The thing I'm seeing more of these days, which is is a lot of shame around how vulvas look. Wow, yeah. A lot, a lot of shame around well, inner lips that absolutely. protrude out. And that's what you already mentioned, you know, when we look about at porn, because that's where they get their idea of what they're supposed to look like. And in our clinic, in our vulvar clinic, in our sexual medicine clinic, when we do an exam, we do it with a mirror that the woman is, is holding so that we are you know, looking, visualizing her vulva together. And I cannot tell you how often women will say, oh, I don't want to look or they never have looked. Um, and, and that's based on not that it's not more difficult to see, which it is, of course, but based on shame, you know, that starts when they're babies, calling it down there, don't touch down there, don't look down there, all of that. So, all right. So, but you said that you think it's getting better for the people that it is getting better. Is it because they've all read your book before they come to the class? Or <laughs> Honestly, it, for some of them? Years before that. I think a lot of them tell me they're taking my class because they either follow me on social media or they've read my book. So they are coming in. So it might be a very small, it might not be, it might not represent. I was going to say this is not a, a representative whole. population. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm at this university, a friend tells a friend, read her book and oh my gosh, she teaches here. So it is not representative. Yeah. When when you wrote the book, I'm curious, did you have a hard time getting someone to agree to publish it? That is an interesting question. So I didn't have a hard time getting someone to publish it, but I had two distinct reactions from agents who, because my agent from my first book sadly passed away. So I had to start from scratch and it was divided by age. The Agents that were around my age, I'm in my 60s, were like, what? Why do we need this? Like, we've known this since, you know, we were, you know, our bodies ourselves. And the younger agents 
were like, this is revolutionary. And, you know, that's so it there, I didn't, I did have a heart. It was very age divided. But then when I found the agent who picked it up, it was soon picked up again by a young editor who yeah. could see the problems in her generation but it was very divided by age. I, that doesn't surprise me. And once it did get published, and this is what I found when I published um, Sex Rx, was it wasn't like Good Morning America and the Today Show were clamoring to have me on, <laughs> because they very often do with new authors that have a big publisher and a good agent and all that kind of stuff. And um, Good Morning America finally had me on, but only if I talked about mommies who've lost their mojo, you know, postpartum women who weren't feeling sexual as opposed to midlife women and, and older women women. So, um, you know, it's not sexy, right? Did you, did you have any trouble getting out there in the world and talking about your book? Um, I did. And well, I got some, you know, again, it was divided, right? Like college campuses were eager, you know, um, you know, and certain, you know, publications were giving me good reviews, but there was also quite a bit of backlash, um, especially on social media, like, you know, stuff that made me realize, boy, did this book need to be written. Like, I mean, I hate to say this, but I got so many comments about all you need is a good dick, you know, and, you know, you wrote a whole book about a problem that you only have. It's like, uh, no, let's look at the research here. You know, it's, this is, you know, this is not a personal journey. It, this is a scientific one, you know, and right, it's um, not about your ability to have an orgasm. People, it's amazing how people somehow think that it is as opposed to that you're an academician and a scientist. But, you know, when you bring it up, you know, all you need is a big dick, which we've all heard this or the right dick or the whatever dick. Um, you know, one of the biggest myths, of course, that you bust is the all too common belief that women are going to have an orgasm with penile vaginal penetration. And still every day, women are shocked when I tell them it's normal to not have an orgasm during intercourse unless there's also been simultaneously clitoral stimulation. So, you know, talk about why women still believe this to be the case. It is, it is to me, I, you know, honestly, I can't believe I'm still having to educate about this. I'm sure you're feeling the same way, or I'm guessing like, wow, we're still talking about this. And I think there's a couple reasons. One is there's such a deep history, like you started talking about around de denigrating women's sexuality or making it a mimic of men's that so that's you know we all can go back to freud right who said vaginal orgasms are mature and once we get mature we'll transfer the feeling from our clitoris to our vagina that's like like, that's, you're a physician, right? That's like saying when you grow very up, creative. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you'll start breathing through your ears instead of your nose. It's right. like, no, we don't transfer functions. But I think it's due to really deep, deep sexism that is so, so ingrained in the culture that this is one area where we don't even notice it. Like certainly all like most of the media you consume, whether it's standard movies, porn, whatever, they show women having fast and fabulous orgasms from penetration alone. And then even the language we use like underscores this, right? We call it, we use the word sex and intercourse as if they're one and the same. Right. Prioritizing that is the main event. We call foreplay like, oh, just to lead it up to the count. main event. Right. It's yeah. not sex, you know, and 
it's and we call our entire genitals a vagina and therefore linguistically erasing the part of us that gives ourselves most pleasure and calling our entire genitals by the part that's more sexually useful to men than to us. So I think it's just so deeply ingrained in our culture and especially in the U.S. where we have lousy sex ed, there's nothing to counteract these images. Yeah. Well, you know, and and again, we, we, we have the same conversations in the office all the time. When someone has a medical condition, I will say to them, you could have all the sex you want. I just want you to stop having intercourse immediately until I tell you otherwise. And they look at me like, what? I don't understand what you just said. What do you mean I can have sex, but I can't have intercourse? And then, you know, going through this whole explanation of, no, you can still have orgasms. You can still have pleasure. You can still do all these other things. But I just don't want you to put anything in your vagina right this minute because of, you know, X, Y, Z. You know, one of the questions I always like to ask experts like you, because I get all kinds of different answers and it's so interesting, is biologically, it makes sense for women to have pleasure during intercourse to encourage reproduction, which is biologically why we have sex. But, you know, of course, um, the clitoris is anatomically in a place that's not going to be stimulated during intercourse. So what is your theory on the placement of the clitoris such that it is not going to encourage reproduction? Okay, so that is such an int- I love that question. And I address it in my book and I go through different theories. What have people said over time? And um, and I won't do that now unless you want me to back up and say all the theories that don't make as much sense to me. I but my go where you want. <laughs> go, okay. So, you know, there's the theory that um, it used to be inside the vagina, right? And it migrated out. Um, that's a pretty new theory. And it migrated out because of, you know, cycle regulation and living in groups. There's a theory that, you know, all kinds of different theories of the function of the female orgasm. My favorite theory is a feminist anthropological theory that says women's inability to reach orgasm during intercourse is an excellent screener for a partner because a partner who cares about your pleasure in the bedroom and really wants to stimulate your clitoris, really wants to elevate that as much as his pleasure is going to be a good partner outside of the bedroom. And I just love that theory. You know what? I love that theory. But the problem with that theory is you're assuming that the guy knows where the clitoris is or what to do with it. So there's that problem too. (laughs) But assuming that he has a clue, I love it. My theory has always been so that women can self-pleasure and take that responsibility on, on, you know, on their own, uh, you know, but that doesn't really biologically make any sense. Yours biologically makes sense. Mine yeah. just seemed like, you know, a good idea at the time. Let me circle back a little bit. Um, I'm going to talk about the title of your book a little bit, which is like truly one of the world's best titles. I'm The New York Times called it the year's best book title. How did you come up with it? Well, honestly, um, I had the word clitoracy and clitorate in the book pro- um, proposal that I shopped around. And I, I that wasn't the original title. The original title was quite boring. It was called Closing the Orgasm Gap. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't coin the terms clitorate or clitoracy. Ian Kerner did in the back cover of the book, She Comes, comes first, first, which we always talk about. Yeah. And which is a how-to oral sex guide. And it was in the back of that cover. And I fell in love with that word. And I put it in the proposal, citing him. 
And the editor who bought the book said, I love the concept. I love everything. Title's boring. We have to use this word in the title. So I wrote to Ian and I said, like, this is what's going on. And he was so, you know, wonderful, generous, clitorate. He was so clitorate. He said, the more people that know that word, the better. I don't own that word. If that word is going to help spread orgasm equality, use it, Lori. So that's how it came to be. Well, it's memorable and perfect. You know, know, in your book, you talk a lot about orgasm equality, both politically and from a relationship point of view. So can you describe what you mean by orgasm equality? Yeah, basically, it's I'll define it first as the opposite of what we have right now, which is orgasm inequality or an orgasm gap. Like the research is so clear. And you can look at so many studies, but women are having way fewer orgasms than men in heterosexual sexual encounters. The biggest gap is in hookup sex. It gets smaller in friends with benefits, but it never closes altogether. Even in relationship sex, women are having fewer orgasms. And so that is what we have now. We have orgasm inequality. And I am not saying that every sexual encounter needs to result in an orgasm for both partners. That's not realistic. However, what I am saying is if we have this pretty robust statistical finding in the scientific literature, in the culture, where one group of people is having much less pleasure than the other, we have got a political problem. Yeah. Which starts, I'm sure you're familiar with, with Peggy Ornstein's book, uh, Girls and Sex. And, and one of the things that I really loved about her book is that she addresses the fact that um, this starts very young in terms of sex education, which I want to get to. And I remember someone once said to me after reading uh, Peggy's book, they said, so mothers should talk to their daughters about this. And I said, yeah, but the problem is no one's talked to the mothers. So the mothers can't educate because I know I do the mothers, you know, that's what I see in my clinic. And then the mothers don't really understand either about orgasm equality and the expectation that women should have and girls should have pleasure. It's not all about all about the boys. Um, so there's that. One of the things that that you do that I like so much in your book is is your sex scripts. So describe the concept of this uh, the sex script, and then give an example if you would. Yeah. So that comes from, and there's kind of a funny story behind that. Like this is the the chapter in the book you're talking about is one where I try to like. In a sense, it's the climax of the book, right? Everything you've learned about your anatomy and the everything comes together and how do you do partner sex? And I really had trouble writing that because I couldn't like say, well, do this or do that because the truth is everybody's different. There is, you know, any anybody who tells you do this and you'll have pleasure, run, right? Because everybody's different. I mean, except for some generalities like yeah touch the vulva and the clitoris. Um, And so what I started thinking about is what academics call our standard cultural script for sex, which is foreplay just to get her ready for intercourse, intercourse, which we call sex, male orgasm, sex over. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take that concept of scripts and say, let's change the script. And I go through four scripts. One is She Comes First, which is Ian's book title, but his is Oral Sex, where she comes, followed by Intercourse, where he comes, 
and I expand it so it can be inclusive. It could be oral sex turn taking, you know, vibrator on her, uh, you know, hand job for him. It's taking turns where the woman comes first and then she comes second. And honestly, I see more women who want that script because they can't relax and enjoy themselves till their partner orgasms. Um, very do you, find that, do you find that in same sex couples as well? Um, not as much yeah. because there yeah. is. Oh, I know. I just thought I'd ask. <laughs> yeah. Some women. Yeah. Cause they're just their personality, but I find it in a lot of heterosexual women. So that would be enough fooling around enough stimulation that intercourse is not painful if that's where he orgasms um, or, and then the orgasm for her it could be vibrator. It could be get in the bathtub and put your legs up under the, you know, um, tub. Yeah. yeah. Like however you normally orgasm. And then I have a script called only she comes and people freaked about that one. They really did. They're like, that's weird. And I was like, really? Is it weirder than what's happening now in heterosexual hookups? No, it's just him coming. So, yeah, yeah. And then you come together and I'm very careful to say not at the same time. That's a myth. And but if you want to come during the same act and that act is intercourse, then use a position where you can stimulate your clitoris against his body part or take your hand or a vibrator and use it on yourself during intercourse or and use I want a to cup. circle back yeah. to the vibrator thing in a second. You know, but you talked earlier again about porn. And I think that's one of the many, many disservices that porn has done is that not only do women come within, you know, 14 seconds of pounding intercourse, but it is simultaneous with, with the guy. And so that's, you know, part of where this expectation comes from in, in terms of, you know, this, this, the, the myth of the simultaneous orgasm. So speaking about masturbation, um, one of the many, many things I, I love about your book is how specific you are about not only that a woman should masturbate, but um, specific instructions how to masturbate. And so... Talk a little bit about that. Why did you decide to include that in the book? Why do you think it's important? Um, how did you go about coming up with those set of instructions? Yeah. So, I mean, we know that the most empirically supported technique for a woman who's never had an orgasm is send her home and tell her to pleasure herself. Of course, then the next step is transferring that to partner sex, which is harder for a lot. So, I mean, I knew I had to have a chapter on masturbation because it's so important to the treatment of being inner orgasmic. And I also thought it's like from my work with my patients, I can't just say go home and masturbate. For some, yes. But for a lot, it's like, <gasps> first, you need to decrease the shame. You have to educate get them away from the, the stuff, the mindset that you read at the beginning. And so I started with that. And then I felt like I had to give really specific examples of how different people do it and let people know, just experiment because there's a million ways to move your hand. And, you know, as you well know, while most of us, the vast majority, all but 4% really say external stimulation is necessary, just where and how and what type of pressure someone wants is very individualized. 
Yeah. What do you think of of the website OMGS? I love it. Could you, yeah. could you describe it? Because everyone listening may not be familiar with it. Yeah, and I actually recommend it in the orgasm, the masturbation chapter. So it was a combination of some researchers from Kinsey Institute and some lay people saying, let's talk about this. And there's three seasons. And the first season is all about external stimulation. The second is about internal. And the third is about toys. And just to be clear, these are videos, not podcasts. Yes. yes. And they interviewed a ton of women. They talked to women about their masturbation styles. And based on that, they came up with words that we didn't have before about commonalities across women's masturbation style, like edging, for example, you know, which is like getting really close and then stopping and lots of other things. And what they did is they basically then filmed women doing their masturbation style up close and personal. And they even have touchscreen technology so you can learn to touch a vulva in different places. My clients love it. They yeah. really nor it really, you know, it's a non-pornographic. I was gonna say it's the anti-porn. It's it's yes. real women who don't have perfect bodies, who have hair on their vulvas, who, you know, they it's look like exactly. they look like actual women, like the, I see in my gynecologic office every day, the real people. Exactly. I love that. I love that. The other site I love, and I mean she's passed away now, is Betty Dotson, who wrote Sex for One. But if I show, instead of showing OMG Yes in my class, I show this video called Becoming Orgasmic Carol. And it's Betty giving a private orgasm lesson to a young medical student, actually, who's never even looked at herself before. It's not unusual. And, And by the end, she's saying, I'm beautiful, and she's having orgasms. And it's just so shocking because the, you know, and so beautiful at the same time that it's really moves the needle for my students. I have my students write these reflections after each class, like, Mm -hmm. what did you learn? What was new? And so many of them say, I went home and masturbated to orgasm for the first time after watching that video, or now I don't feel ashamed of the way I orgasm. So it's just so powerful. Both Betty's work and OMG, yes, I think are so powerful for people to watch and see. Well, it's normalizing it. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is removing the shame and normalizing what women do um, and and don't do to pleasure themselves. And and that's so important. You know, when we talk about um, using a vibrator, and um, I actually just gave a lecture last week to a group of physicians, and I was talking specifically about the use of vibrators for people who have medical conditions such that they're not able to orgasm without it. And there's actually very interesting science behind why a vibrator works when touch doesn't and oral sex doesn't and all that. But but that aside, when I after I was talking to this medical group about the science behind vibration and why it elicits orgasm in women who have nerve endings that are not quite healthy. Um, and and the number one question I got afterwards was, okay, I get it, and I can get my patient to use a vibrator, which by the way, I do not cause a to- I do not call them toys. Um, I call them sexual tools because these are to be used to, you know, enable you to have a normal sexual response as opposed to something just to make it more fun. <laughs> you know, you can't have an orgasm at all. It's a tool, not a toy. But 
Um, but the number one question that came up is, but how do you deal with the partner? How do you get the partner on board? And I have my answer, but I love how you approach it. And I love the raft analogy that you use. So talk about what a raft has to do with the vibrator during partner and sexual yes. activity. You know, I mean, I think it gets to that myth, right, that we're both trying to, you know, get rid of like, no, they don't replace men. They just provide really good stimulation that a hand, a tongue, you know, a penis cannot give. So the metaphor I use is if you were in the swimming pool and there was a raft there and you and your partner jumped on the raft, off the raft, kissed on the raft, jump off, kiss in the water, laid on the raft and cuddled, you would not go home and call your girlfriend and go, oh, me and my raft had the best day together. Oh, my boyfriend was there too. You wouldn't even mention the raft because it was just a tool See? to enhance tool. the experience. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't the experience itself. You yeah. were not having, you know, a great day with your raft. You were having a great day with your partner, and the raft was there to enhance the experience. And the same is true of vibrators. Yeah. And when I talk to male partners, I'd be like. You really want her to have pleasure. Yes. I mean, men, I mean, I see mostly men who really want that, but they've been misguided too. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you're barking up the wrong tree. If that's what you really want, then let's talk about how to really yeah. enhance that. And Debbie Herbenek has great research that shows a man's acceptance of a partner's vibrator use is very highly correlated with her sexual satisfaction. It's very hard research to argue with. So I use that as well when I talk to men. Yeah. I mean, isn't Debbie's statistic that um, in her, uh, the old data was 80% of couples um, or 80% of women that use a vibrator use it as part of a couple. Is that driving? Yeah, I think so. I can't remember the, and women who use vibrators, not only have better and easier and more frequent orgasms, they actually have better sexual health. They go to the gynecologist more. That's right. Well, yes. And um, and I'm actually very excited because I had a conversation with Debbie Herbenick not too long ago. And as you probably know, that all that research that she did about sex in America, she's now has the updated um, version that I think she is publishing in spring of 2023. So um, I'm going to be talking to her about that. But I, I, her work in terms of couples and vibrators has really been so important in terms of, again, normalizing, normalizing it for so many couples so that they can you know, incorporate it. And the other piece of it too, um, in addition to what you said, is it not only do men want to have have their partners have pleasure, but it takes the pressure off them. Not yes. to mention in my world where I'm dealing primarily with men and women who are between the ages of 50 and 100, the majority of these guys have a hard time either having an erection or maintaining an erection. And to know that they can both have pleasure and that the woman can have an orgasm without having penetrative sex really is a game changer because all too often, people don't even start feeling like if they can't have the grand finale, what's the point? And we're, we're changing the grand finale. You know? <laughs> yes, exactly. The other thing that um, I heard um, the urologist who I love, Dr. Rachel Rubin, say, she said, you know, clitorises, penises are just big external clitorises, which I love the way she says that because it yeah. flips the way we usually say it. She said, they love vibration too. So I also tell men 
if your partner's down there vibrating herself on her vulva and clitoris and your penis is nearby, you're going to catch some vicarious vibes and you're going to like it. Believe me. Yeah. Well, it turns out, um, Rachel, uh, she did a great podcast with me. For those of you listening who didn't hear it, it's called Need to Know Information About the Penis in Your Bed. I think it's episode six or seven. But one of the things when I talk about the neurology of the clitoris is there's something called pachinian corpuscles that are in the clitoris, and that's the uh, the nerve receptors that respond to vibration. And men have them too. You know, the, the, the head of the penis and the tip of the clitoris really have the same neurologic innervation. And yes, men will also get pleasure. So speaking of men, um, you know, one of the most important chapters in your book, of course, is clitoracy for him. So how do we make that chapter required reading for every man in America? Should women, you know, buy your book and hand it to them? Should they read it together? What what do we do? We got to get the, the message out to the men. I know. And I've been working on that. But, you know, the truth is women are the ones who buy self-help books. But I have had many men say they've really enjoyed that chapter and told friends. And I actually have gotten the honor of speaking to a few fraternity houses about that. So I think it's just continuing to get the word out, you know, pound the pavement. The more women talk about it and talk to their partners and their friends, the better off we'll be. You know, and I I mentioned that um, one of the advantages also is to take pressure off men, particularly if they have erectile dysfunction. And I've also talked to to groups of young men. And one of their big issues is um, premature ejaculation. And again, this is a way to take the pressure off them. Say, even if you come quickly, if she has already had her orgasm, you don't need to feel bad. (laughs) Because a lot of times they feel like if I don't last a long time, somehow, you know. Right. And that's related to the myth that they're going to, they need to last a long time to give her an orgasm. And it's such a game changer in terms of pressure for everyone to take that pressure off. Well, one of the things when I talk about uh, vibrators is very often a woman receives her first vibrator from a well-meaning guy who thinks that what she really wants is something that's long and hard and shakes a lot for hours. (laughs) Appreciating that, no, that's actually the exact opposite of what she wants. But it it, it comes from the same place that they think that, okay, if I can't last for an hour, I'm going to get a vibrator that does. Right. And kind of making that next leap of saying she actually, while she might enjoy having that internal stimulation in the fullness at the end of the day, she's, she's going to need that clitoral stimulation, which unless it's a rabbit vibrator, it's, it's, it's not going to do it for her. So what do we do about sex education in America without getting too political? Cause I'm assuming that you and I are kind of in the same place on all of that. It's, it's getting worse now, not better. Absolutely. So, so Give help me on this. What do we do? What do we do about sex education in America? Oh, I wish I had an answer. Be the parents. Where do we where do we go with this? When should we I start? wish I had an answer? And you know, I almost wrote a book. I didn't. I rejected that idea, but a like a call to action around sex education. And I thought, no one's gonna buy it. You know, I would and, buy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're singing the same song. You know, I, I think it's just gonna take a lot of political pressure and it, you know, it's going to change it. It's going to involve a change in 
I mean, everything is so interrelated. I think our lack of sex ed, our the overturning. You know, again, I am going to get political, but I mean, you, okay. you, I'm, I'm I'm with you on that. So the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the don't say gay bill in Florida, like all of this is due. All of this is around oppressing many people's humanity and way of being in the world. And, you know, I really believe that if we had better sex education, we'd solve not just the orgasm gap, we'd have more, less sexual assault, less sexual coercion. And the data bear that out. The Netherlands and Norway have excellent sex ed. They have a less of an orgasm gap and much less sexual assault and coercion. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I don't know if this is a realistic solution, but I would like to take it out of the hands of the school. I think that we are depending too much on the schools supplying this education. But then, of course, that leaves it in the hands of parents, which also is fraught with problems. Um, sometimes I think it should be like driver's ed. It used to be when you and I were growing up, driver's ed was part of high school. You go to driver's ed at school and now it's all done privately. So maybe we need private sex eds schools. Yes. Start, you know, at age, I really think it really needs to start during you know the toddler years because that's when the shame starts. That's when you start with pointing out anatomically correct parts to both boys and girls and talking about vulvas and talking about penises and talking about all the parts using appropriate language um, and then take it from there. But I don't, I don't have a solution either. I, it's, yeah. It's a problem. And, and, you know, when you talk about the women who come to your class who, who know nothing and, and fortunately you're there to, to teach them. But first of all, how sad it is that there they are as young adults learning for the first time. And of course you, you know, you don't get that many people in your class. You're taking, looking at, you know, a few thousand as opposed to millions. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I'm, I'm with you. I don't know what the solution is, but I definitely think it's a, it's a problem we need to solve. And, you know, I, you know, it's, I really do think that if we had, you know, in, in the toddler years, like in Norway, that's when they start teaching consent. Right. If someone hugs you and you don't want to hug them, you get to say no. I don't want to hug well, you. You know, and it's interesting because we had our big family party the other night and and I was noticing how there was one of my little uh, niece who's five years old and none of us said to her, give me a hug. We all said, can I give you a hug? And it was a subtle thing, but it was certainly different than when you and I went to family parties when we were five and smelly uncle, you know, whatever came over and demanded a hug. And you're just thinking, "Ooh, I don't want to hug him. But you had to. And, yes, now, and that starts early. And right from the get go, we are asking permission. You know, it was interesting. I, I saw a patient in the office yesterday, um, a woman in her 60s and and, you know, very bright, educated woman who, um, and, and I diagnosed a vulvar condition called lichen sclerosis. And when I got the mirror and pointed it out to her, and she told me that she not only never really looked at her vulva, but that she had been having symptoms like itching and burning and just disregarded it. And after we talked about what was going on with her for a long time, it was really heartening to me that what she said was, I am going to go home and have a conversation with my daughters and my granddaughters about 
that they need to look at their vulvas and to know how they look normally. Because she said, quite frankly, I don't even know what it's supposed to look like normally because I've never really looked before. And and maybe that's where we start with, with the mothers and the grandmothers and put the responsibility on them to say, someone's got to look. I mean, we have a medical condition situation now where women are told they don't need gynecologic exams and their internists, you know, between below the waist is a no-fly zone and no one's even looking. And I see women all the time with vulvar conditions and vulvar precancers and cancers because no one's looking. So that's, you know, a whole nother piece of it that, that we have to deal with. What haven't I asked you? Tell me the, the thing that you most want to talk about and that you want people to know? Well, I think you've asked me almost everything. Um, the only thing that I would say that we didn't cover is mindfulness, which is, you know, the simple version, right, is putting your mind and your body in the same space. Like so many times we can be doing one thing, receiving oral sex, for example, and our mind can be somewhere else instead of on the sensations like, do I smell bad? Do I look bad? Oops, I forgot to return that email. And no one is ever fully present. That is not possible. But what is possible is being able to quickly notice when your mind wanders and bring it back to the body sensations. And I have instructions for that in my book. There's another, there's a great book all about it by Lori Brado called Better Sex Through Mindfulness. And that is really the key to sexual pleasure for many, for people without, you know, like medical conditions like you're talking about or very deep-seated shame or trauma. Sometimes it's simply knowing your own body, feeling empowered to get that pleasure in alone and with a partner through the ways we've talked about. But it's also being able to be present in the moment. And that's so important. But, you know... One of the things that you mentioned kind of quickly when you're talking about mindfulness is this whole notion of being um, too mindful about what you look like. And you had talked earlier about women feeling shame about what their uh, external genitalia look like. That, oh, are my, are my labia too long? Is my vaginal opening too large? You know, that kind of thing. And one of the many downstream effects of our current pubic hairstyle of, of less is more and porn, those, those two factors, you know, women are very self-critical. So how do you help women who have this mindset that they are simply just not yeah, as far as and, and, and to me that that is not mindfulness thinking how do I look that's being not present in your body sensation so for me mindfulness is body and mind presence connectedness but dealing with that shame is so important and I can't I mean I just I actually just wrote did an Instagram video about that the other day like telling people it is completely normal to have one inner lip bigger than the other to have it stick out. I often tell people my vulva profile looks like a face with a tongue sticking out. Mm. And I'm and I'm not ashamed of it because I was never told to be, but now women are and really really emphasizing that there and use in using resources like um the labia library or gyno diversity or the book petals to really show women 
what vulvas look like. Talk about the labia library because I know what that is, but people listening may not. So, <laughs> so the labia library is an online source, just like gyno diversity, where real people put pictures of their vulva and it shows the vast array. Some clitoral hoods are bigger than others. Some lips are bigger than others and that it's all normal. And as Paul Joannidis, the author of The Guide to Getting On says, the inner lips are actually what gives your vulva its unique personality. It's everyone is different, like a unique snowflake and really, really embracing vulva diversity. And then maybe returning to uh, full bush hairstyles so people <laughs> don't get so obsessed with, with exactly how their labia look. Well, you know, I just taught this the other day in my class and I was like, and usually whatever I teach, then there's like an attitude shift. But I talked about, and you can please correct me if I'm wrong, but that I talked about that most of my sexual medicine physician colleagues say do not remove it all. Do not shave. Trimming is okay. It's the pair is there for a function and that they're seeing a lot of health concerns based on shaving and blah, blah. And I teach this and then I say, are you going to change their behavior? And the answer is no. No. So I'm like, you know, what I'm told is it's no different than shaving my legs or under my arms. And and yes, um, we there is a function for pubic hair, not only in, in days before there was central heating of, of keeping the genitals warm, because we know the genitals that are warm perform much better than genitals that are cold, um, but also in terms of lubrication, decreasing friction so that you don't get rug burn. Someone even once told me that anthropologically it tells men where to go. <laughs> you know, it's like a target. I'm not sure about that part, but certainly the, the lubrication and cushioning part is, is very, very important. And we do see injuries from pubic hair removal, you know, from burns and nicks and chemical burns from, uh, in, you know, you, you can only imagine the, the things that happen, but I don't see that trend changing anytime soon. Um, it is what it is. You go the other way that's of saying, okay, it's normal to look different and take pleasure in your own unique labia snowflake pattern and and go with it. Exactly. Exactly. This has been wonderful. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. She checked the or check the program notes to find out where to find the book, where to find Dr. Mintz, follow her on social media, and thank you so much. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Now I'm sleeping through the night I find